Any Wife to Any Husband, a derived poem. This small garden is half my world. I am nothing to it when all is said. I plant the thorn and kiss the rose, but they will grow when I am dead. Let not this change love the human life. Share with her the joy you had with me. List with her the plaintive bird you heard with me. Feel all human joys, but feel most a shadowy third. Welcome to Point South. I'm your host, Sarah A. Lewis of the Oxford American. On today's show, Tess Taylor revisits and expands on her essay, Light the Word. It was originally published in the fall 2018 issue of the OA. She examines an underappreciated Southern poet named Ann Spencer and the ecosystem of art and activism that Spencer created over the course of her life in Lynchburg, Virginia. Then later, we're thrilled to bring you a live performance by another Virginian, Lucy Dacus, whose album, Home Video, is stunning. But first, more on Ann Spencer. Here's Tess Taylor on the significance of Spencer's work. Her archive is phenomenally interesting. And it's interesting because it affirms the incredibly active intelligence of somebody who's living a fundamentally domestic life. Her output was really small. She did, you know, it was 30 poems during her lifetime. And it makes hard going for for huge amounts of scholarship because there's lots of fragments around the edges. There are lines of social critique and poetry on electric bills. And I loved this. This texture to me of the work being done that way was very affirming and it felt familiar, and it felt, um, it companioned me in a domestic practice that I have of jotting down a few lines on the back of a grocery list and hoping that I'll have time to make them into a poem. And so there's something about the beautiful, unfinished quality of the work, and yet the continual practice of bearing witness and of writing that I think, is part of the scholarship of Ann Spencer. Taylor returned to Spencer's work on the occasion of Spencer's inclusion in the USPS's Voices of the Harlem Renaissance series. She is in conversation with Dr. Carlene Ferrari, who teaches African-American literature at Seattle University, and Camille Dungy, who, like Spencer, is a poet and Virginian. Dungy once lived down the street from the renowned writer. They discuss Ann Spencer as a literary figure of the 1920s, her activism, and her boundless wit and wisdom. Back to Tess. At the top of the segment, we heard the scholar Dr. Carlene Ferrari reading her favorite poem by Ann Spencer, whose life and poems offer us powerful models, even and especially a hundred years after they were written. Spencer is sometimes classified amid the poets of the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s, but she never lived in Harlem. 
Actually, she lived in Lynchburg, Virginia, where she and her husband, Edward, crafted a house on Pierce Street filled with art and hosted a salon which drew activists and visiting artists from James Weldon Johnson to Paul Robeson to Zora Neale Hurston to W.E.B. Du Bois. Perhaps as the essence, and perhaps as the piece de resistance, Spencer also cultivated an incredible garden in the back. The entry foyer is pink. A lemon-yellow ottoman in the bronze sitting room holds a weathered copy of The Souls of Black Folk. A parlor table holds papers documenting the first meeting of the Lynchburg chapter of the NAACP, which convened here when James Weldon Johnson first visited in 1917. Beneath a painting by Lawrence A. Jones, a black arts movement painter, the dining table is set with turquoise china. A bright, book-filled sitting room overlooks the garden where Spencer's writing cottage waits. The garden fends off the world's turbulence. The kitchen has mint green walls, deep red linoleum floors, and a splash of lime trim. A cupboard is painted with a bit of Spencer's 1926 poem, Lines to a Nasturtium. I invited the poet Camille Dungy to read it, and to discuss Spencer's work with me. Day torch, flamethrower, cool, hot beauty, I cannot see. I cannot hear your fluty voice lure your loving swain. But I know one other to whom you are in beauty born in vain. Dungy, whose family came from Lynchburg, and once lived close to Spencer's, taught for a while at Randolph College. She is now University Distinguished Professor of Creative Writing and Poetry at Colorado State, and the author of many tremendous books of poetry that deftly explore both the Black body and the natural world. My family knew Ann Spencer, um, and so would have known her work. And this feeling that I have of always having known Ann Spencer and not being able to tell you exactly when her poetry came into my life has something to do with that familiarity, both of, of the culture out of which she's coming and the community she lived in and really helped to create. I do remember the first time I visited her house and just what a delightful space it is. I think there's something about those kinds of preservation efforts where we can see somebody's imprint on a space. I felt the same way. In coming to Spencer's house, I was entering the domestic space of a brilliant Black woman who, in addition to being a poet, was a literary writer, hostess, and activist. From this home and garden, Spencer wrote nationally celebrated poetry, worked to build the town's first Black library, and helped to found her town's NAACP chapter. She housed all of the major Black figures who would come through Lynchburg. It was a it was kind of a thoroughfare at the time, but their house was the house where these figures would stay. She was deeply connected. There are not many good recordings of Spencer reading. One with Chauncey, her son, is faint and scratchy. It jumps back and forth discussing how James Weldon Johnson was dealing with Woodrow Wilson's racism and whether or not Paul Robeson was a communist. But there's a political spark and a sidelong wit that I recognized. 
here's a tiny bit of Ann Spencer's voice coming through time. Sometimes our eyes grow dim with tears and it's a futility of our attempt, the unrewarding sequence of our attempt to even locate half-truths of what would be history if men were honest men. And the best thing to do is take up phrases and make a new Anne Spencer is not only a poet, but an example, an epicenter, a microhistory of literary life and black life in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. For all this richness, she still remains a poet's poet, a figure reserved for people in the know. Maybe that's because she only published 30 poems in her lifetime. She was 40 years old when her first poem was published in 1922. Anne Spencer was born Annie Bethel Scales in Henry County, Virginia, south of Lynchburg on February 6, 1882. Spencer's biographer, J. Lee Green, who recently passed away after decades of professor of English and African American Studies at UNC Chapel Hill, describes Spencer's mother, Sarah Louise Scales, as the child of a former slave and a wealthy Virginia aristocrat. I talked to Carlene Ferrari, a professor of Afro-American studies at Seattle University, who's working on two book projects about Spencer. A lot of her education came from being on her own. She went into school already with this love of nature, with this love of reading. She was a very precocious child, very a wide reader, um, an avid reader rather. And so she went into school um, even without the kind of formal education, she had this kind of fierce independence and affinity for for solitude. And so one of the things that Green notes in the biography is that while she might not have had that kind of formal classroom education, she was able to cultivate this strong sense of individuality and personal freedom that really um, served as the foundation for how she lived her life and also the foundation for a lot of the themes of her her poetry. Jay Lee Green reports that when Anne arrived in Lynchburg, she could barely read. Later, Spencer recalled, when I went to the seminary, I could call all the words, but I couldn't understand them. Nevertheless, she ended her time at the school as one of her class's highest achievers. She made a reputation for herself as being, you know, a bit uh, outspoken or a bit of a, I don't want to say problem student, but let's just say that she wasn't really interested in, in those kinds of, um, the kind of prescriptive notion of what it meant to be a good girl and what it meant to be a, um, a good woman, so to speak. At school, Anne met Edward Spencer, he tutored her in geometry in exchange for her help with language translations. The two fell in love. Edward was quite an intelligent man. She liked him, but her mother wasn't particularly fond of him. 
and had another individual in, in mind for her. So while the school was supposed to be the place where she was going to be groomed to find a kind of ideal husband, she ended up finding um, Edward, who you know would ultimately be the perfect match for her because he very much cultivated, allowed her to cultivate that sense of independence and, and creativity that she had going into, into the seminary. At the time she began writing poems, she also gave her high school's commencement speech using de Tocqueville's ideas to suggest the role of Black citizens in revolutionizing America's future. Later, she remembered it as an optimistic moment and that her speech was well-received by both whites and Blacks in the audience. Optimism or no, Anne was poised to enter a violent, deeply segregated world. After graduation, her career options were limited. As an educated Black woman, the only real path open to her was teaching, which she did for a while. She wanted to marry Edward, but her mother felt he was too working class. Her mother had different suitors lined up, an elderly doctor and a principal whom Anne did not wish to marry. Anne Spencer was just uh, not interested. She actually jumps out of a window to escape um, a conversation with him, literally jumps out of a window. And um, she has a story um, that was published in, I think it was Colored American Magazine, um, Beth's Triumph, that sounds like it's actually based on this moment of her life where she literally jumps out of a window to escape an unwanted suitor, so a nod to her fierce independence and unwavering sense of self. Anne prevailed. In 1901, she married Edward Spencer and moved back to Lynchburg. By 1903, already with two small children in tow, the couple moved to the house on Pierce Street. Edward was a craftsman and a careful collector. He helped Anne in his work and also in building a beautiful home. Camille Dungy describes it this way. Her husband was a mailman and he w worked a few routes that had him in some relatively wealthy areas. Lynchburg, Virginia, because of its placement on the James River uh, and then because of its placement on the railroad line, was a very wealthy town for some time. And so on his mail route, Spencer would sometimes um, just collect things um, with, with the permission of the people who've kind of been finished with them. So the college built a brick wall around the grounds of the college. And when they did that, they kind of had no use anymore for this wrought iron gate. The marriage was happy, supportive, and fortuitous. Together, Edward and Anne built ecosystems for art, activism, family, and retreat. Because I think it's really easy to look at their home now and to like project like a certain like middle classness or privilege onto them. And I mean, if you look through those ledgers, you know, in the archive, like he had so many jobs. Like I can't keep track of how many jobs he had, right? I mean, he was the postmaster. Um, I think he and his brother owned a hardware store down the street. There was also, he was a chauffeur. I found a chauffeur's license. 
This was one of the first generations to come of age after enslavement. Edward was taking advantage of every new door that could open. Meanwhile, Anne had freedom to dream. She had for a mother of three and for a black Southern woman or really any married mother of the 1910s and 20s, a rather radical freedom to write. The family hired help with laundry, child raising and cooking. Edward supported her ambitions. Anne often woke late, dressed slowly, went to work in the garden, joined her family for dinner, and then stayed up in her cottage with her books and papers. Sometimes she drafted lines in the morning while getting dressed and worked the same lines into poems at night. When I've spoken about her in the past and, you know, talk about her kind of self-care routine and the, and the like, you know, the bathing for, you know, two hours and brushing her hair. And, you know, sometimes people will be like, oh, she lived this like fabulous lifestyle. You know, she was like the real housewife of Lynchburg. And I'm like, no, not that's not what that was. Yes, there's a way that she's using this time to subvert existing routines and to build an intentional, beautiful world that could be nourishing. Here's a poem from that time describing a washerwoman that Spencer, in her notebook, called A High Priestess of Cleanliness. Camille Dungy reads it here. Lady, 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 I saw your face, dark as night withholding a star. The chisel fell, or it might have been you had borne so long the yoke of men. Lady, lady, I saw your hands, twisted awry like crumpled roots, bleached poor white in a sudsy tub, wrinkled and drawn from your rub-a-dub. Lady, lady, I saw your heart, and altered there in its darksome place were the tongues of flames the ancients knew where the good God sits to spangle through. I love that poem and I was going to ask you about it also because one of the things in that poem is that the whiteness seems to be the scalding or the wound. The wound actually in the poem is white, is figured as white. There's something very subversive in her formulation there. One of the things that I think Spencer does really, really well is she makes you question your assumptions about the connotations of white and black. Uh, she is a writer who reverses our culture's typical connotations of those words. And so whiteness scalds, scalds, leeches, bones, um, desiccation, dryness, just cruelty and violence. Those are uh, the connotations that she very frequently lays uh, against whiteness and blackness is often earth, soil, that which things can grow from, uh, potential beauty, uh, space for wonder. Uh, and so she just, it's subtle until you see it and then it's <laughs> just all over her work. I asked Carlene about the poem. The repetition of Lady Lady and addressing her so formally is an amazing sign of respect and something that certainly wouldn't have been extended to a woman, a black woman in, in 1925. And I think that 
that last line about um, where the good God sits to to spangle through, just aligning her with divinity and aligning her with um, with God, I think is is such um, such a beautiful line because in the 1920s, in particular, was just not um, not a moment in history in which you know black women were were well respected certainly not called ladies and so she's doing i think some really subversive i think important early black feminist work by even writing this poem another important part of spencer's story is not just the poems themselves but the way that the poems reflect an intentional ecosystem which Spencer cultivated and which she helped build for others. In fact, Spencer's entire publishing career grew out of a meeting. As the tale goes, W.E.B. Du Bois, um, you know, they become acquainted because he needed to stay someplace where there was an indoor bathroom and she was one of the only individuals who had indoor plumbing. And so that was one of the ways that her home became known as not just this this safe haven, but also a place that could be welcoming and accommodating um, to an outside world that was so hostile. In this way, Spencer's publishing career grew as a joint flower with her building of the Lynchburg NAACP and the fact that in the house she had built with Edward, she could house travelers. And that was no small gift. In the segregated South, it was difficult for African-Americans to find reliably safe places to stay. And word spread of Spencer's garden, her fine bathtub, her good hospitality, her beautiful bedrooms. Later, Spencer did take a job to help send her children north to college, working for some time, as she put it, in the Jim Crow Library, the only black woman employed by the all-white Jones Library in Lynchburg. She pushed the library to desegregate, but the idea did not take. In 1924, Spencer became the head librarian of a new black library. This turned out to be an empty, bookless room in Dunbar High School. She ended up donating her own books. Spencer worked as the librarian at Dunbar for 21 years. Her pay was $75 a month. The town's black people needed a librarian because by the deed of the public library in the city, you could not enter the library in that town. In order for the town to desegregate the library, they had to build an entirely new building because the building was deeded in that way. In Lynchburg, Spencer often walked miles to work to avoid riding segregated public transportation. And when she did ride, she refused to go to the back of the bus. She would also march into the offices of the bus company and complain. Years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus in Montgomery, Spencer also simply sat down. In this town, against this backdrop, Anne Spencer wrote beautiful lines of poetry and made fascinating observations about the world of everyday life. But after the publication of her poems during the Harlem Renaissance, she largely stopped sending out her work. Here's Carlene again. One of the things that um, her archive is filled with is letters from, from people like James Weldon Johnson and W.E.B. Du Bois who are you know, begging her to, to send things 
um, to her. Um, one of my favorite letters, it's, it's a draft of a letter to James Weldon Johnson. And she says, um, I have nothing new finished, but I have 11 to 11 bits of paper stuck in so many different places that promise something if I ever get to them. And I think that without the encouragement um, and say um, the, I don't want to say harassing, I should say insisting in, you know, from James Weldon Johnson, I think it, it becomes um, a little bit easier for her to, to revert to the solitude and to the um, kind of private nature of her writing with which she was, I think, most comfortable. Um, and, you know, I think, though, what's important to remember is that even though her writing isn't being displayed in this public um, realm, that she's still writing every day all day. Um, you know, Johnson really does introduce her to this kind of formal, the formal life of a writer, um, but it's not something that she really desired or aspired to have. And so I think she was comfortable letting it go because it never was something that was central to her sense of self and wasn't the metrics that she used to evaluate herself or the validity of her writing. I talked to Carlene about my trip to the Alderman Library at the University of Virginia and all of the Ann Spencer papers I saw there as well. There's these incredible scraps in there that are such an, an evidence of this woman making sense of these days. Um, I loved this fragment that was on an electric bill and it said, these streets are too expensive and gold and milk pearls. Nobody's been to heaven since reconstruction years. It says something that that was enough for her, that a line or two, to her that was a poem and you know, to her that was a manuscript and that was enough. One of my favorite lines is, um, I found it, just on a scrap somewhere, there's nothing more boring than connubial bliss. And, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's, you know, she's got these fantastic um, one-liners. And she's so funny. Like, she's so funny. She's hilarious. My favorite age for woman is when she has left giggles but come to laughter. The soul has conscience, the body mostly intellect or things starkly different can equal. If love is stronger than death, so is ignorance. Yes, she is hilarious, but also in her brevity, she's also so profound. When I visited the archive, I fell in love with Spencer's fierceness and wit. As I've journeyed deeper in my exploration of Spencer's work, I want more. More finished poems, more typed notes, more essays. I also wish Spencer more ease in her world, more freedom to travel widely. During the pandemic, this year where I've also been constantly in intimate spaces, I've been gardening and thinking about her garden too. Her garden, like her home, is full of whimsy. Lilacs dance around boxwood hedges, 
At the center of the garden, a robin's egg blue pergola is draped in grapevines, and in the back is the cool shed with the desk and many books. Spencer called the garden her Gethsemane, referring to the garden where Jesus passed his final earthly hours. In 1974, looking out at her garden, Spencer wrote this last poem from her sun porch. Turn an earth clod, peel a shaly rock. In fondness molest a curly worm whose familiar is everywhere. Kneel, and the curly worm sentient now will light the word that tells the poet what a poem is. Sentient, the word hits me, coming to know coming to knowledge, coming alive, coming awake to the world and all its possibilities, lighting the word. That is what we want for the plant world, but for the human world as well. Spencer died on July 27, 1975. It's fitting that after Spencer's death, her garden became in its own way an emblem of healing. When the garden fell into neglect in the early 80s, Anne's son, Chauncey Spencer, asked the Lynchburg Hillside Garden Club to help restore it. At the time, the garden club's ladies were all white. Many had never heard of Spencer. Few had ever visited the black side of town. And painstakingly, these women restored the garden to health, pruning back roses, nursing original bulbs, These days, the garden is open from sunrise to sunset, seven days a week. The Hillside Garden Club maintains the garden for the public and is a space to stop and linger. Reading Anne Spencer today, Camille Dungy says that Spencer offers a powerful model. I think of her uh, as a woman and her, essentially my age, um, doing the same work. And so I'm able to think of her as a sister and a peer and a compatriot. Uh, when I, when I walk through my own garden and move through my own garden, she had, she had a grape arbor that nobody was allowed to eat from because the grapes were for the birds. Um, and I, 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 have a lot of that in my own garden that I, I always wonder, like, is this, um, sense that I have of this particular plant that uh, isn't for me, it's for it's for the rest of the ecosystem around me. Is that does that come out of me or does that come out of Ann Spencer? And I'm I'm not ever entirely sure. And I'm okay with that. Spencer's garden is alive. When you visit it, when you go, you may fall in love. You may find that Spencer, even now, offers powerful models about how to build community and ecosystem and poems all at once. I love how Spencer's poems want to unsettle us towards blooming, towards becoming, towards leaning, towards the earth, towards community, towards the world, and maybe finally, towards one another. Y'all asked and we listened. Back by Popular Demand is the free CD accompaniment to our 2021 Up South music issue. Join us this winter to explore the influence of Southern sounds in Motown, Chicago gospel, Philly soul, and beyond. 
You can pre-order the music issue today at OxfordAmericanGoods.org and use the code PODCAST for 15% off your purchase. That's OxfordAmericanGoods.org, code PODCAST. Last year, we met up with a few artists at the 30A Songwriters Festival for a series of intimate live performances. Today, we're excited to bring you Virginia native Lucy Dacus, who is also a member of the band Boy Genius. Dacus's third studio album, Home Video, which was released in June, revisits her childhood in Richmond, narrating memories of first love and her journey with faith and sexuality. Here she is performing Trust and Fool's Gold. Okay, I'm going to play this song called Trust. I set a fire on the stove And fed it everywhere I wrote I watch my journals turn to smoke Now all there is is what I spoke And I decided long ago To make the most of what I know And worry not of what I Perfect the art of letting go Cause if I trust in something else Then I don't need to trust myself I've learned a lot since I began But I think I was wiser then I've done too much and not enough In trying to put you above I cannot tell if I'm in love Or whose regard I'm thinking of If beauty is the only way To make the nightmares go away I'll plant a garden in your brain and let the roots absorb the pain I set a fire to my soul I hope it ate till it was full I 
to the National Endowment for the Humanities and the African American History Commission for making this episode possible. We were also honored to partner with the Ann Spencer House and Garden Museum on this episode, which marks the first time listeners can hear Ann Spencer's voice outside of the museum's archives. 
Poetry and archival audio, courtesy of the Ann Spencer House and Garden Museum, Inc. archives, and Sean Spencer Hester. Special thanks to Spencer Hester and Dr. J. Lee Green for their contribution to this episode. This episode was produced by me, Tess Taylor, Sarah Weitz Kodachek, Noah Britton, and Hannah Salters, with Eliza Borne, Trey Pollard, and Julia Krause. Lucy Dacus appears courtesy of Matador Records. Audio mixing by Curtis Fai and post production and score by Space Bomb. Additional recording at Real Paid Studios. Sign up for our newsletter at OxfordAmerican.org/newsletter for all the latest OA and Point South info. And remember, promo code Podcast gets you fifteen percent off any purchase at OxfordAmericanGoods.org. Thanks to Thirty A Songwriters Festival, Fayetteville Roots, and Visit Fayetteville. We hope you enjoyed the show.